0: Hi there, I'm Prateva and I'm a public health specialist.
1: And I'm Danny. I know nothing about public health. We started this podcast to help you navigate through the fire hose of information.
0: Our goal at Immunosity is to speak to the concerns people have about COVID-19 and open up the conversation so that everyone can speak up without being shamed for their questions, perspectives, or concerns. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Immunosity. With vaccines in the process of being rolled out across several parts of the world, communities have exhibited varying levels of concerns, and we understand. There's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and frankly, a lot of questions around vaccines, and we wanted to do our part to help. So in today's episode, Danny and I will be mostly taking a step back and listening in while our two special guests discuss these concerns. Joining us is Ian Breton. Ian, would you like to briefly introduce yourself?
2: Hi, good evening. My name is Ian. I've been working in healthcare IT for over 15 years. I'm based here in Toronto, Canada, and I am curious to know about the COVID-19 and be informed and educated on this topic.
0: Amazing. And we also have Dr. Taylor Holroyd joining us from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Taylor, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, thank you for having me.
3: Like you said, I'm Dr. Taylor Holroyd, and I'm a research scientist at the International Vaccine Access Center at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in Baltimore, Maryland. And most of my research focuses on vaccine hesitancy, vaccine policy and programming, as well as ways to improve vaccine coverage and access in low and middle income settings.
0: Amazing. So without further ado, I will give the floor to both of you to get started on this very important discussion.
2: Okay, so I come from a very data-driven, decision-making, analytical, detail-oriented, and everything that I do must go through rigorous testing. If it's in healthcare IT, if something breaks, you have to test before you apply to the live system, to the hospital information system. So my questions are very much in that sense of starting from the beginning to now what has been done and how confident are we that this is the efficacy of these vaccines? So how are vaccines typically developed and how long do they normally take?
3: Great question. So as you know, the COVID vaccine was developed in under a year, and that's no small feat to develop a vaccine this quickly. Typically, vaccines take anywhere from a couple of years to decades to develop, depending on a number of factors, including funding, the type of disease, as well as I would say kind of priority or political will for developing that type of vaccine. So all vaccines, including COVID vaccines, they all go through the same phases of clinical trials, the exact same safety and efficacy testing, as well as testing in different groups of people in order to make sure that we can get not only sufficient amount of data to make sure that the vaccine is safe and efficacious, but also to see kind of how different populations or different risk groups can respond to that vaccine. And so I can speak a little bit as well to kind of why we've seen such a rapid development for the COVID vaccine, because as I'm sure you know, it it happened much more quickly than vaccines normally do. And I want to preface by saying that no corners were cut with COVID vaccine development, but there are a couple of factors contributing to the development of COVID vaccines that really help to enable this all to happen so much more quickly than normal. And I would say that those factors include the fact that we've had kind of previous coronavirus vaccine development in the works for a couple of decades. There were some changes allowing for the phases to happen concurrently rather than consecutively. Just really massive worldwide collaboration of resources and people working on vaccine development for this specific virus all at the same time. And really just, enormous funding specifically dedicated towards this disease, talking in the billions of dollars, whereas normally for other diseases they're not prioritized in that way and they definitely don't see that kind of money and that kind of resource mobilization happening all at once.
2: Interesting point there about the previous coronavirus vaccines that were being developed. Were they being developed using the same method of this mRNA vaccine that's been developed?
3: Yeah, another good question. So the mRNA vaccine development is something that's been worked on for a couple of years and not only for coronavirus vaccines. Similar viruses have been worked on for vaccine development for other coronaviruses since, I would say, the early 2000s with the 2003 SARS pandemic, and then later, for example, with MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. So while SARS-CoV-2 is a novel virus, we already knew a lot about, about this family of coronaviruses, including the structure of the virus and the spike protein. So there's kind of this history of working on coronaviruses and coronavirus-based vaccines for the last couple of decades, and that contributed to the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine being produced like relatively rapidly. RNA vaccines specifically haven't only been attempted for coronaviruses. They've been kind of looking at them for other diseases as well. But as I'm sure you know, this new mRNA vaccine, this is the first time that this has been successfully developed, as well as given this type of emergency use authorization.
2: Okay, so how is it that COVID-19 vaccines went from research to emergency approval within nine months?
3: Yeah, great question. So I would say that this has to do very much with the kind of the things I outlined before. So First of all, the fact that we've had coronavirus vaccine development ongoing for the last couple of decades. So even if it's a novel virus, we had a good understanding of what could potentially be useful in developing this type of vaccine. As part of a broader strategy to really accelerate COVID vaccine development, the steps of development and manufacturing for COVID vaccines were permitted to happen concurrently rather than consecutively. So for example, they started manufacturing the Pfizer vaccine at industrial scale before the demonstration of vaccine efficacy and safety. Whereas normally pharmaceutical companies would wait to manufacture thousands of vaccines in order to make sure that the vaccine is approved so they're not taking that big financial risk. But in this case, just really, again, billions of dollars in government funding permitted those things to happen simultaneously while eliminating that financial risk for companies. So as soon as it was approved, that's how we had hundreds of thousands of doses already stockpiled. And then, as you know, like I mentioned before, pretty much everyone working in vaccine research and development dropped other projects this year in order to focus solely on COVID. But never before have we really seen... I would say in the modern era, this type of worldwide collaboration and resource mobilization among all of these epidemiologists and virologists and vaccine development experts all focused on a single disease. So basically pouring all of that manpower and all of those resources into one singular focus really enabled it to go so much more quickly than usual because normally all these people would be working on very different things rather than all focused on one problem. And then that, coupled with this just year of massive funding specifically towards COVID from governments and pharmaceutical companies and NGOs that were, again, all working towards this singular mission of preventing COVID. And again, for other diseases that are infectious, but they're not yet vaccine preventable, we really don't see this type of focused, enormous funding or that type of political will going into really everybody mobilizing to produce a vaccine. There's other diseases out there that maybe affect fewer people, don't cause severe disease or they're not as contagious. So they present less of a concern. And just because COVID had obviously a really significant impact worldwide with shutdowns and economic losses and unemployment, obviously a lot of resources were poured into finding a way to to prevent this disease as quickly as possible.
2: Yeah. And I don't typically think about this from the financial standpoint or the business side, but from what you mentioned, since they started to actually mass produce this even pre-clinical trials or pre-approval, that says a lot about how much money was pumped into these companies for the financial backing to say, yes, go ahead and produce and mass produce to that scale that now we have hundreds of thousands, maybe millions available. So I'm no scientists. I'm no epidemiologist. I don't know about this. So explain to me, what is the difference between the mRNA vaccine versus your typical vaccine?
3: Sure. So I'm sure that you've heard there's actually a couple different types of vaccines that are being produced by different pharmaceutical companies for COVID. And there's two main types of vaccines that are being talked about. And the first one that was given the emergency use authorization by the FDA is from Pfizer and BioNTech and this is an mRNA vaccine, and the Moderna one is also an mRNA vaccine. So this is a new type of vaccine in that it's never been licensed before, but like I mentioned before, it's also not new in that researchers have been trying to create mRNA vaccines for years. So the way that vaccines traditionally work, the vaccines that we have that are licensed and used routinely, is typically by injecting an inactivated or weakened, they call it attenuated pathogen or a piece of the pathogen into your body and that triggers an immune response and production of antibodies so that your body can fight off that kind of mimicked infection. mRNA vaccines work a little bit differently. You don't you're not injecting a piece of the pathogen. Instead, mRNA vaccines work by basically teaching your cells to produce a protein from that pathogen, which also triggers an immune response and production of antibodies. So for example, the way that the Pfizer vaccine works, and the, the Moderna one is similar, is that it basically encodes instructions for your cells to produce the spike protein, which is found on the surface of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. And that spike protein is particularly immunogenic, meaning that it induces a really strong immune response. So only that piece of the virus is used. And the vaccine only encodes that small piece of the virus rather than the whole thing. So It's important to note that it's impossible for the vaccine to cause the live virus in our bodies because it's only including one small piece of it. The other vaccine that's being talked about, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, it's not an mRNA vaccine. It's an adenovirus-vectored vaccine. And vectored vaccines are not new technology. And the way that one works is that the adenovirus, which is a, a virus that's the cause of the common cold it's used as a vector or kind of a delivery system. So these adenovirus vectors, they're stripped of any disease causing genes and then the genetic instructions for making the antigen from the target pathogen, again, the COVID spike protein, are encoded into that vector's genome. So this enables the delivery of the spike protein antigen encoded in the the backbone of this unrelated modified adenovirus. So it's useful to have this type of vaccine as well, because as I'm sure you guys have heard, the mRNA vaccines have to be kept at pretty low temperatures, which isn't feasible in a lot of low resource settings. So the Oxford vaccine can be kept at higher temperatures um, and it should be more widely usable.
2: So pardon my ignorance on this. We've been handed on the news. We just said it myself as well, mRNA. What does mRNA stand for?
3: Yeah, very good question. mRNA is a messenger RNA. It's not DNA. mRNA is different. The mRNA, if you go back to kind of biology basics in a bit, in the cytoplasm from your cells, the mRNA from the vaccine is translated into protein by your ribosomes. During that process, it's gradually shortened. And then after basically telling your cells to produce the spike protein, your cell then breaks down the mRNA and gets rid of it. So messenger
2: RNA. Thank you. I just say I haven't done a a lot of research on it, but it's good to know what it stands for. So thanks for explaining that. Now, what I'm looking at is the clinical trial. So we know that they said tens of thousands of people. So I'm curious to know, I don't know the exact figures, but how many people participated in the clinical trials for COVID-19 vaccines relative to the number that typically uh, participate in clinical trials for vaccines overall?
3: Yeah, so pretty much the the way that clinical trials are conducted in the U.S. is there's specific numbers of people who have to be included in each phase. And for COVID, it was the same numbers as normal. So at this point in the Pfizer trials, I think it's almost 50,000 people have participated in six different countries. And so you start out with phase one, where typically you have a few dozen people to assess safety, followed by increasing it to a few hundred, then a few thousand, then tens of thousands. For COVID, they combined phases one and two, including a few hundred people in the early phases to assess safety, just to speed it up. So in that first phase, a couple hundred people to look at safety, potential side effects, the immune response, dosage, and then later on increasing it to the the thousands and tens of, tens of thousands of people that we've seen now that we know that it's, after seeing that it was safe and effective. But the same sample sizes that you would see for vaccine clinical trials for any other vaccine.
2: And that's good to know. I'm sure others might have had the same type of question. And for these participants, what criteria did these participants have to meet to partake in clinical trials?
3: Yeah, so typically, at least for the first few phases, they're generally looking for healthy adults. So these vaccines, for example, weren't tested in children in the first few phases, weren't tested in pregnant women or immunocompromised people or people with other comorbidities. They're typically looking for people over age 18 who generally are healthy, don't have other comorbidities and who are willing and able to consent to participating in a clinical trial.
2: Interesting that you mentioned that, because that's one of my questions that come up later on. And it starts off with, what is the diversity of the population who performed the clinical trial? So I'm referring to ethnic background, health conditions, and as you mentioned just now, things like age, if they have immunocompromised diseases, or any other comorbidities. So can you elaborate on that, please?
3: Yeah. So like I mentioned, I think about 50,000 people participated in, for example, the Pfizer vaccine trials, I think at close to 150 sites in six different countries. So I would say very wide ethnic demographic and geographic diversity. Um, Among these adults, we generally wouldn't see too much diversity in terms of other conditions and immunocompromised persons, just because the requirements of early clinical phases are to keep it among generally healthy individuals. Typically, you look at immunocompromised persons either in phase three or in phase four, which are post licensure studies to obtain additional safety and efficacy data about the vaccine. I would say for all of the data collected both on the Pfizer and on the other vaccines, they also had a pretty broad age range of participants. I don't know the exact numbers, but for Pfizer, it was individuals over age 16, and I think probably up to the 50s and 60s. So not necessarily looking at people who are more elderly, but again, among those people, they might otherwise have conditions that would make them immunocompromised.
1: I have a question on that, actually, Taylor, if I can jump in. I'm curious to hear about, I think Ian's question about the diversity of participants is really amazing, because I know that's a concern that a lot of our listeners have had. Does that also mean that the distribution of the vaccine at the beginning is limited to specific groups? Like, for example, children, pregnant women, people who may be immunocompromised, are they not included in the first delivery of the vaccine?
3: Yeah, great question. So for this vaccine, you have probably seen in the news that very specific groups have been included in the first Of distribution phases, and this is all determined by FDA and CDC, as well as the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. So, that was more decided based on attempting to control this pandemic. So, the first few phases of people will include healthcare workers, people who are living and working in long term care facilities, as well as elderly persons, I believe starting with over age 75 and then moving to over age 65. So Basically, you're able to, in the clinical trials, you're able to gather all of this data to determine that the vaccine is extremely safe and effective, which gives them the necessary data and confidence to be able to administer this vaccine in more diverse groups. Later on, the vaccine will be administered in other healthy adults who aren't necessarily as high risk for severe disease from COVID. Once additional phases are conducted, Um, then it's possible that they'll start including children. But as far as I know, for the Pfizer vaccine, it's currently given emergency use authorization in those over age 16. And for Moderna, I believe it's over age 18. So children will not be included at first. But I think that this is also just less of a concern because we haven't seen either extremely high, we haven't seen high prevalence of either severe disease, hospitalizations or deaths at all among children, or young
2: adults. Just to continue on that point about the first groups of um, patients who are receiving the COVID-19 vaccines, for the elderly, if we're talking about those who have immunocompromised diseases or anything, any underlying conditions, what happens to those? Do they get left out?
3: Yeah, so not necessarily left out. Typically, If you have maybe a a number of comorbidities that would make it questionable whether or not you should receive the vaccine, that's a decision that you would make with your primary care provider. Like I said before, pregnant and immunocompromised people are generally included in phase four studies. So post licensure studies to obtain that additional data about the vaccine. For immunocompromised individuals, the mRNA vaccine should not pose any additional risk. The reason that they're typically not included in earlier phases is because for other types of vaccines, for example, live attenuated vaccines like the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, those are typically not recommended for severely immunocompromised individuals because live attenuated vaccines work by injecting a, the pathogen or a piece of the pathogen that's been severely weakened and allowing it to replicate in the body in order to induce an immune response. And these types of vaccines work really well and they're extremely safe, but in people who are immunosuppressed or severely immunocompromised, that replication of the weakened virus could be enhanced and it could result in more severe reactions to the vaccine. But neither the mRNA vaccine nor the vectored vaccines that are being produced for COVID, neither of those are live attenuated vaccines, so there's no replication in the body and also no risk of causing COVID-19 disease. So generally, vaccines that are not live attenuated are safe for immunocompromised people. Plus, as we know, immunocompromised people are at substantially increased risk for serious disease and complications from COVID-19, especially those immunocompromised people who are elderly. And so I think in the next couple phases of distribution, we will see those higher risk individuals being prioritized for vaccination.
2: I think at some point you mentioned those who are pregnant Mm -hmm. and whether they should be involved in this and and accept that COVID-19 vaccine at this stage. Is this too early or are there any other groups that should not be accepting the COVID-19 vaccine?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. So the uh, American College of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists has actually recommended the Pfizer vaccine, that it can be administered in pregnant and lactating individuals, if they also meet those criteria for the other priority groups that were defined by the ACIP. So healthcare workers, and those who are living and working in long term care facilities. So it's a decision that pregnant women can make with their healthcare providers. The inclusion of pregnant and lactating women in vaccine clinical trials, it's a really long-standing question in this field. And it's important to consider, especially when we think of high-risk pregnant women, like healthcare workers who are pregnant, who we would want to obviously protect from COVID-19 infection. And I think probably about two dozen women in the Pfizer vaccine trials became pregnant during those trials, and none of them reported any issues or complications. So, Pregnant women are typically included in kind of post-licensure surveillance and post-licensure studies to obtain additional data. And in the U.S., we do currently recommend and administer other vaccines during pregnancy, both influenza vaccines and Tdap or tetanus, diphtheria, acellular pertussis vaccines. So that can be a really safe and effective mechanism for protecting both the mother and the child. So. Like I said, the kind of presiding body for obstetricians and gynecologists has recommended that this vaccine can be used in pregnant women, and I think that that possibility of maternal immunization for COVID-19 is really exciting, in particular for protecting pregnant healthcare workers who are at increased risk of infection because of their profession.
2: So does that put a lot of responsibility on family practitioners to decide on whether or not somebody should be given the COVID-19 vaccine?
3: Yeah, so I would say it would be more of a decision probably made by obstetricians who are working with pregnant women specifically. And that's another reason why we have kind of these professional associations of providers, not only in the US, but in other countries as well, who are well-equipped to examine that safety and efficacy data and to kind of make that recommendation for healthcare workers in general. I think kind of that individual decision being made between the practitioner and the patient has more to do with kind of a collaboration between those parties and making sure that everyone's comfortable with that decision. And also just because the the provider knows each patient best, knows whether they would have other, for example, other comorbidities or other conditions that might prevent them from having a particularly good immune response or that might also put them at higher risk for COVID disease and make them maybe a better candidate for the vaccine. So I wouldn't say that it puts any excessive responsibility on the provider, but that's the reason why we have these bodies make recommendations for these groups based on the data that we have.
2: That's good to know. I just wanted to understand how, that, how they um, come about with making that decision, what data is provided to them for them to make an informed decision as to, yes. In terms of safety and risk, it, it's worth taking this vaccine given your condition, given your comorbidities, etc.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Another question that I have that every day we see it, even from the beginning of the, um, the Pfizer vaccine, talking about 95% or 94% efficacy. So, what is, can you define that? Like, what does 95% efficacy represent?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. So, in this case, it would pretty much mean that among, for example, 100 people who get the vaccine, 94 and 95% of those people would be protected against COVID-19 disease. And so I should note that these clinical trials were designed to determine whether or not the vaccine can prevent disease. They're still looking at kind of evaluating the clinical data to see whether the vaccine can prevent infection to begin with. And I think that it likely can prevent infection, but we're still waiting on that data. We can think of examples like influenza vaccines where those aren't necessarily effective at preventing infection or preventing mild disease, but they're really good at preventing severe disease. But the COVID vaccines have really high efficacy. So they're looking extremely effective at preventing disease. And I suspect that we'll also see at least some protection against kind of infection with the virus as well.
2: And as we look and see that Transmission is going through the roof everywhere <laughs> worldwide we're seeing lockdowns here locally in Canada and the u s and the u k it's It's going for long term so i'm curious to know given these clinical trials and what was involved, was there any type of testing in terms of transmission, or was that excluded from this whole research
3: yeah so Pretty much the clinical trial data is collected specifically looking at individuals to see whether or not they ex- experience COVID symptoms, whether or not they develop COVID antibodies, and whether or not they test positive for the virus or are positive for the disease. So I would say that the clinical trials are not looking at transmission because the point of the trials is to examine the vaccine specifically.
2: And there's so many vaccines out there. So you mentioned it earlier. There are the two that are mRNAs, and then there's the other one that's a vector one. And I'm sure that there are many others. What are the differences between the many? Aside from the fact that you said two mRNAs and the others were vectors, what are the differences? Because if we're shopping for something, if we're trying to buy a car or a house, we try to do a comparison and see which one is most suitable for yourself. So what would you say are the differences between these different vaccines?
3: Yeah, good question. And I will say at first, especially while kind of vaccine stock is low, I don't think that people will be able to kind of decide which vaccine they'll be getting for themselves. I think that that will be kind of predetermined based on supply, as well as kind of where you're getting the vaccine. Because if we look at For example, if you're getting the vaccine in a hospital, they might be better equipped to have the low temperature Pfizer vaccines compared to a family clinic where they might have the Moderna vaccine that can be kept at a uh, slightly higher temperature. So there are, yeah, a couple differences between these types of vaccines. We can start with kind of the differences between those Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. So both of those are mRNA vaccines. The main difference between them is that they're using basically different mRNA molecules, using a different lipid molecule in which that mRNA, messenger RNA, is wrapped up. So that lipid molecule that enables the mRNA to enter the cell and facilitate their delivery inside the cell and then translate it into proteins, that's different between these two, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And those different lipid molecules are what make their characteristics different. So different storage and temperature conditions are required. So like I mentioned, the Moderna vaccine does not need to be kept at super cold temperatures like Pfizer's. The Pfizer vaccine needs to be stored at about minus 75 degrees Celsius, um, which is about 50 degrees colder than other routine vaccines that are currently used in the U.S., whereas the Moderna vaccine can be kept at about minus 20 degrees Celsius, so about the temperature of a home freezer Um, and it can also be kept in a refrigerator for 30 days before it expires. The doses between those two vaccines are a bit different as well. Um, Moderna's vaccine is administered 28 days apart, whereas uh, Pfizer's vaccine is administered 21 days apart. So slight differences between those vaccines, but again, the differences that you'll see are kind of impacting the supply side. Really the only difference for the consumer would be the, amount of time in between getting those two doses. As for the other vaccine that will likely be getting approval, emergency use authorization next, the Oxford vaccine, it can be kept again at probably refrigerator temperatures. This one has demonstrated that that it's still extremely safe, but it has lower efficacy, closer to about 70-75%. But I think given its refrigeration capacity and how it doesn't require the need for deep freezers, this Oxford vaccine will probably be the choice of low and middle income settings that don't have the capacity or the existing kind of infrastructure and cold chain systems to have vaccines that need to be kept at much colder temperatures. In the U.S. and in Canada and in other high income countries, people, people will be receiving the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. Again, probably not able to make that decision for themselves, but one important thing to note is that if you get your first dose of one vaccine, your second dose should be with the same type of vaccine.
2: So let's just say, given your wealth of knowledge and experience in this field and what you know about these different vaccines, if you were in a situation where you, you could choose any one of them, which one would you choose and why?
3: Yeah, good question. So I mean, I would say definitely either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, because those have very similar safety and efficacy data. And also just because in terms of kind of ease of access, those are the ones that the general public in the US and Canada will be seeing probably the soonest, especially given the FDA hasn't looked at or decided on the Oxford vaccine just yet. I really wouldn't discriminate between the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. They work very similarly, like I mentioned, and also have very similar vaccine efficacy. So I would pick either of those two for myself.
2: Thanks, that helps a lot because it's, you know, it's tough trying to figure out what is best if you have the choice. Understand mm-hmm. that uh, Understand that we don't have that choice. It's a case of what's available and the logistics are insane when it comes to delivery mm-hmm. and the temperatures and all these factors that are involved. One of the questions that I have on the list is what level of confidence do you have that this does not have long-term side effects?
3: Yeah. So I'm very confident that we're not going to see long-term side effects from this vaccine. The way that vaccine clinical trials work is that during the trial, like I mentioned, hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of people receive doses of the vaccine and they're extremely closely and continuously monitored for side effects and adverse events. So in the Pfizer trials, for example, like I said, almost 50,000 people have already received this vaccine. And during the clinical trials, the Pfizer vaccine was found to have a really good safety profile, meaning that participants might have experienced mild side effects. But other than that, really no complications, no long-term effects were observed. Mainly we saw pain and swelling at the injection site, which is really normal for any vaccine, and it's also temporary. And then about half of the participants also reported other mild side effects like fatigue, headache, muscle ache, which are all also common side effects after any vaccination. And again, all of those going away typically within a day or two. The other reason that I'm not worried about long-term side effects for this vaccine is that with vaccines in general, if there's going to be An adverse event after vaccination, we expect it to happen pretty soon after vaccination. And usually this window is considered to be up until about a month after vaccination, with the vast majority of side effects being observed in the first few hours or the first few days after vaccination. So once a couple months or a year goes by, then that risk window where it's biologically plausible for a vaccine to cause an adverse event has passed. So that's why we can have a really good sense of how safe this vaccine is because these people have been monitored for several months already With the because the doses for the Pfizer trials started in July. So if there were going to be severe impacts from the vaccine, it most likely would have happened in that short period after vaccination. But it's been about five months already since people first started receiving doses. So it's extremely unlikely at this point that we're going to see any long-term impacts. And plus, there will be ongoing post-licensure safety monitoring for any and all COVID-19 vaccines that are licensed, just to be absolutely sure. But so far, no evidence of any long-term effects. And if we were going to see any, we would have seen them in that kind of earlier risk window.
2: Thanks so much for explaining that. That paints a much clearer picture as to what this process entails, how the testing is done and when you typically expect any type of side effects to be observed. At this point, I just wanna make sure that we're not going over time. And also, Daniela, do you have any questions? No? Okay. All right, well, I have a few others. Sure. We have, or watching the news today, we've been seeing this new variation or variant of the COVID-19 in the UK. So what does that mean for the vaccines that are currently available?
3: Yeah, so we have been seeing in the news is kind of what's being described as a a new strain of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's important to note that there are actually already hundreds of documented strains of SARS-CoV-2, and researchers have been tracking those. If you're interested, you can go to, it's called nextstrain.org, and that shows the, the phylogeny of different strains that have already been identified and more interestingly, kind of the regions where those are prevalent. And so it's important to note that a different strain could be as small a change as just like one nucleotide being different. So none of these strains are very different from each other. We aren't talking about, for example, the more significant changes that we see in influenza viruses from year to year that require a new vaccine formulation each year. All of the coronavirus strains that we've seen, including this new UK strain, they're all still extremely similar to each other, similar enough that the vaccine should provide protection against all of them, regardless of region. So they're calling it a new strain. I think it's more accurate to say that there is this strain that's emerging, currently circulating with greater prevalence in the UK, but I hesitate, hesitate to call it a new strain or a mutant strain because I think that that can be a little bit fear inducing. Just because the strain is slightly different from others that we've observed so far, doesn't make it more deadly. From what we can tell so far, it's maybe just transmitting a little more quickly. But we don't really know enough about the different strains just yet, how they differ in terms of transmission. That's still something that is being studied. But I definitely anticipate that the existing vaccines that are either given emergency use authorization or that are still under development or in testing, I anticipate that they will work for all of these different strains, given they're all still extremely similar.
2: Yeah, thanks for sharing that website. I actually had it on a bookmark, because early on, I was going to all these websites with all these graphs showing what's happening in different regions of the the world and also these different strains. So when on the news today, they mentioned that, I thought, well, why is that? What is the big concern that they had to raise this and flag it as, whoa? don't let anybody from the UK into the country or close the borders, it, it sounded like a really fair factor kind of um, situation where, whoa, t- don't let them leave, <laughs> keep them in their country. But it's good to know that it is just like these many that I see on this graph, that it's so many different colors, so many different regions of the world, and the fact that it's just easily to, uh, identifiable that it came from that part of the world as did happen, I think, here in North America. Didn't it come from Europe?
3: Yeah, so this new UK strain, I, I believe, originally was identified in Europe. But you're right that we have been seeing kind of different strains come and go in terms of prevalence in these regions. And I think that that's kind of the way to think about this UK strain, is just that this one happened to kind of pick up speed in this population and is maybe able to circulate a little bit better or it's just we're seeing it as being more prevalent in this population but that doesn't necessarily make it more dangerous.
2: And on a global level on a global scale how are they capturing the adverse reactions to the vaccines?
3: Yeah so like I mentioned before that's what's included basically in the clinical trial data when they're examining these people who are receiving doses of the vaccine they're checked really carefully for whether they're seeing any symptoms, whether they're basically experiencing anything different from normal. And if they do observe kind of any conditions or any symptoms that could possibly be caused by the vaccine, then they're also able to look at kind of the background rates for those conditions and seeing whether it's occurring at an increased rate among people who were vaccinated compared to people who received the placebo but all of these people who participated in the trials are monitored extremely closely, especially, especially given the fact that all eyes in the world are on these clinical trials right now. And so typically they have healthcare providers who stand by during the trials who not only administer the vaccine, but who also are in charge of kind of evaluating the participants for symptoms and side effects.
2: So what about those who have not been partaken in that clinical trial and who have received the vaccine from when it was um, approved within the last couple of weeks?
3: Yeah, so operates in a pretty similar way. Typically, people are going to be receiving the vaccine either at their workplace, if they're working in a hospital, or from their healthcare provider. And so for any vaccine administration, typically they have you wait for about 5 to 15 minutes after the vaccine is administered to make sure that you don't have any severe side effects right away. And then people are able to report any adverse events that they have to kind of surveillance systems that happen nationally and internationally. But like I mentioned so far, while a lot of participants or recipients of the vaccine have experienced pain or swelling at the injection site, that's very normal for any vaccine. And they're also able to keep track of those other side effects like fatigue and headache, either through those healthcare providers who are administering the vaccine, or through hospital systems and long-term care facilities that are administering the vaccine to their employees.
2: Well, that explains it. Okay, I was curious as to how that is captured, if if at all it is being captured, because you're right that within the clinical trials they would have been keeping a very very close eye on everything. But now outside of the clinical trials and the average consumer receiving these, that's my question of what would happen and how are they being able to record this on a global level? And that also goes into my final question, which is regarding the what they're terming as a kind of a vaccination card. Do you foresee that as, as a, a means of identifying who has been vaccinated? And in the future, it might be a case of businesses restaurants, theaters, or even traveling, having those customers being able to identify and show that, yes, I have had the vaccine. Do you see that happening in the future?
3: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I would say that that's, this is a little bit of a new frontier when it comes to vaccination. In the past, I mean, mandatory vaccinations are required for other things. For example, typically people who work in schools or hospital systems are required to get The influenza vaccine each year. We also have seen and continue to see, for example, many countries in sub Saharan Africa requiring travelers to receive yellow fever vaccine before entering the country and providing proof of vaccination upon arrival or upon obtaining a visa. So there is some precedent for mandatory vaccination and there's some precedent for kind of having proof of the vaccine. From what I've seen and understood so far, I believe that the vaccination cards are primarily being distributed right now so that people can keep track of which company they receive the first dose of the vaccine from to make sure that their second dose is consistent with the first dose. I have seen some discussion of whether there would be policies implemented requiring people to have a vaccination card to kind of enter public spaces, like you mentioned, restaurants, gyms, businesses, or to travel in the future. I have to say, I'm not sure what decisions will be made. And I think a lot of that might be left up to private companies, for example, whether airlines who have previously been testing people for COVID at the gate or requiring masks and face shields on the plane might instead shift to requiring people to be vaccinated. I don't know if we'll see anything implemented at a government level requiring the vaccine, especially in the U.S. that would have to be implemented by states rather than federally. But it'll be interesting to see kind of how different countries and different Jurisdictions make that decision, especially. I think it's especially interesting to think about just the ethics of requiring people to get a vaccine to kind of move on into what we consider to be normal life.
2: So, I did say that that was the last question, but I actually have just one more to wrap up. So, I'm not an anti vaxxer, I'm not one of those people who's going to be protesting against vaccines or who would say, I'm not going to give that to my child. I'm against that. That is going to do harm. We've seen documentaries on it and people protesting against it and saying that it's, it's going to be harmful to the human's health. And so they refuse to accept it. So if you were faced with an anti-vaxxer today, what would you tell them to somehow convince them that this is what they should do? They should have the vaccine.
3: Yeah, so it's really challenging and I think too, I mean, we look at vaccine hesitancy as being a spectrum. So we have people who we might consider to be anti-vaccine and that they refuse to get any and all vaccines. But there's also plenty of people in the middle of the spectrum who maybe just have questions about vaccines or maybe they're delaying or refusing some vaccines but not all of them or maybe they fully vaccinate themselves and their kids but they just have questions or concerns about that decision. So I think the way that you would approach that would depend a lot on kind of a a person's issues with the vaccine, their concerns about the vaccine. I know plenty of people who have been fully vaccinated in the past who have had the same questions that you asked today about just how quickly these clinical trials were able to move, especially given what we know about vaccine development in the past just taking years. And so I think that those are completely valid questions. I think probably my approach would just um, be doing my best to answer those questions for people. But I think at the end of the day, as long as this type of vaccine isn't mandatory, that it is going to be up to the general public to decide whether or not they're comfortable getting this vaccine. And I think all we can do is emphasize that it's extremely safe and effective and followed the same requirements and safety protocols as any other vaccine. And I would also argue that like i mentioned before kind of all eyes are on these pharmaceutical companies right now and so i think they're following even more stringent procedures and being as safe as possible just because of the sheer scale of this pandemic and just because of the the risks involved in kind of losing public trust in vaccines right now
1: thank you both so much for all of your questions i think ian I want to thank you for voicing a lot of the questions that I think people have. I know you mentioned at the end there, there is a lot of sentiment against people that have vaccine hesitancy questions because they're often thought of as anti-vaxxers. And I think it's amazing to be able to ask these questions in a public forum. I really appreciate you voicing some of the concerns I had how the vaccine research was conducted. And Taylor, thank you so much for answering all of those questions. I think you did a fantastic job of making the science a little bit more digestible. And I'm sure that all of our listeners will benefit immensely from hearing the conversation. So thank you both so much for joining and I today.
2: Yes, thank you to all of you as well. And Taylor, yes, that was really well explained on each question. And yes, I myself, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Sure, I had a lot of questions. I am concerned about the speed at which things were done and research and development. But after this discussion, I'm much more confident based off of how you've clearly outlined and explained what has happened in this whole journey, this whole process. Mm-hmm. So much more confident in the safety of the vaccine. So thanks for sharing all that information with me.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm glad that I was able to kind of shed some light on how this vaccine was produced. And also, again, I think that it's extremely normal to have these questions and concerns about this vaccine. And so I'm glad that I was able to be at least a little bit helpful in answering some of those questions.
1: Hey there, Danny! again. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Stay safe and mask out.